Well, good morning. It's always nice to uh, see uh, how many kids are uh, going out to Sunday school. There's, uh, there's a lot of them here. If you, have your, uh, if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Matthew chapter 27. We're continuing our way through Matthew chapter 27, and today we'll be in verses 45 to 50. Now, as you're turning there, I, I just want you to consider where we've been so far in this chapter. We've seen the trial of Christ as he's treated like a lawbreaker and a blasphemer in verses 1 through 14. We've seen him exchanged for Barabbas in verses 15 through 26. We've seen Christ bearing the curse in our place, verses 27 through 38, and his Victory over the devil and temptation in verses 39 through 44. All of these things are compacted into this moment of atonement. Uh, you know, when I was in, in Bible school in my theology class, and anyone who's gone to Bible college can probably think to some point where this kind of thing has happened, but one of the questions that everyone in the classroom was debating was, what did Christ accomplish at the cross? And some of them said, well, substitution was the main thing. And then somebody else would say, well, no, it was atonement. And another, it was absorbing the wrath of God, propitiation. Still others, it was victory over Satan, or he was a ransom for us, and that's what it was all about. And uh, they were debating which one of these it was, and while they were, a friend of mine spoke up. Uh, Patrick Williamson is his name. Um, and I wish I'd have thought of his answer, but I didn't. It was his answer, and I'm not going to forget it, because he said something that is true in many theological debates. He said the whole debate is really pointless, because it's pitting one of these things against the other. All of these things were accomplished by Christ at the cross, and it's foolish to try to separate them and rank them. And he was absolutely right. Jesus did accomplish all of these things at Calvary. And one of them does not outshine the other. It's the completeness of His work. And when we work through this chapter on the atonement, it's, it's like holding up, in a way, it's like holding up a diamond. And when you turn it one way, it shines a, a certain pattern. And when you turn it another, it shines a, a different, distinct pattern. But each one comes from the same stone. And the cross of Christ is like that. When you look at it from one angle, He is bearing the curse. When you look at it from another, He is ransoming us. And from another, He's defeating Satan and death and darkness, dealing them a mortal wound. But all of them are contained in this great redemptive work of Christ. And neither one outshines the other. They are all accomplished in this moment by our Lord Jesus. And so this morning, and Lord willing, next Sunday, we'll continue to take up these angles of atonement. And today's passage, Matthew 27, 45 through 50, I want you to see the sacrifice of Christ. We're going to see it in seven scenes, and I'm not going to name them for you, but seven as we work through this passage that you can look for. So Matthew 27, 45 through 50. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all of the land until the ninth hour, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling for Elijah. And at once one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah comes to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would magnify your name today. Magnify the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. You have sent the Holy Spirit to point to Him. And I pray that He would be exalted in our hearts and in our minds and in our thoughts today. He is worthy. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our love. I thank You for Him. Thank You for the cross. Thank You for redeeming us from the curse of the law for ransoming us for so many things. And I pray, Lord, that we would be all the more thankful recognizing the price of our redemption and the price of our purchase. Thank You, Lord. Help us today. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious towards you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. We often hear those words at the end of our service. When we're, when we're leaving this place, it's those words of blessing that are ringing over us. Because of Him, because of God, we above all people in the world are blessed. Now this is Numbers 6. 24 through 26. It was the greatest blessing in the Old Testament. It was greater than the promise of the land and prosperity. It was greater than the, the uh, promise of children and security. It was a greater privilege than the temple and the priesthood and any of the other good things that God gave to His people. You say, why does it exceed them all? What makes this so much higher than they, this blessing? Because in this blessing, God is giving Himself to His people. This is the blessing that expresses His nearness and His care and His watching over them for their good. And it's the spring from which all other blessings flow. It's, it's not unlike this, this capstone promise that you read over and over again. You shall be my people and I shall be your God. This is what it means to have God as your God. God is near and He loves them with an everlasting love. So He keeps them and He makes His face to shine upon them like the sun shining down in the sky. And He is gracious towards them. This means He doesn't repay them according to their sins. He lifts up His countenance upon them by looking on His people with favor and with delight as He says, I will never stop doing good to you. And He gives them peace by protecting them, even fighting for them. Now, if this is the greatest blessing God gave to His people, then what would be the opposite? The Lord curse you and destroy you. The Lord turn His face away from you and treat you with severity. The Lord look on you with derision 
and make war against you as his enemy. Well, when the sky grew dark on that Friday afternoon, that is exactly what was happening to Christ. It wasn't a storm cloud. It wasn't an eclipse. Couldn't have been an eclipse. It was a full moon for Passover. It was happening in that moment when the sun stopped shining was a cosmic display of the abandonment of God. It was the countenance of the Lord going out over Jerusalem and going out over His Son and the, the favor that shined down upon Jesus Christ like the noonday sun from eternity past until this hour, it was extinguished. But it wasn't just turned out. And the Father didn't just turn away from the Son, but in this moment, God the Father turns against the Son with derision and war in judgment. The prophets would often link judgment and darkness together. In Joel 2, Joel chapter 2, darkness covers the earth as God's judgment is poured out in Isaiah chapter 5, when God describes the judgment day, it is darkness so thick that it blocks out all of the light. No light enters in. Pitch blackness. In chapter 13 of Isaiah, uh, the, the darkness that accompanies God's justice blots out every celestial body. In the day and in the night, the sun doesn't shine, the moons and the stars are obscured. And in Zephaniah 1, it is a day of wrath and darkness so thick it can be felt. Even Jesus Himself in Matthew 22 and 25, He says, the worthless ones, the ones God rejects, the ones who are under the judgment of God are thrown out into utter darkness to be judged. Even hell in the Bible is pictured as a, as a contradictory place, a place of fire and darkness. The reason why everything is so dark, it's not so that the deeds can be hidden. And it's not simply because well, darkness is bad. Darkness is the word that the prophets use to emphasize the terror of the day of judgment. They use the word darkness to emphasize the horrors that were in place for the wicked when they would face the throne of God. And you understand why. If some wild animal were chasing you to devour you, it's one thing to be hunted in the day, but how much more terrifying is it in the black of night? Now, it's one thing to hear the window smash somewhere in the house when you're there at the kitchen and you hear the intruder coming in. That's frightening. It's something else altogether different to hear the window smash and it wake you when you're in bed. It's one thing to walk alone through the woods or an alleyway in the middle of the day. Something else entirely to do it at midnight. And darkness emphasizes the terror of the judgment. And when the lights in heaven go out, it isn't just overcast. It's not just gray. 
It is a supernatural blackening of the skies over Jerusalem to, to display in some physical, temporal way the terror of the judgment that's coming from the Father and is about to take place. Because this, when the sky grows dark for those three hours, this is the moment when God the Father strikes God the Son. These three hours of darkness, they are completely silent. Before it came, Jesus spoke. He gave John instructions. He said, this is my mother, this is your mother. Care for her. He asked for a drink. He speaks to the thief dying next to him. But when the darkness falls, it begins three hours of silent torment as the Lord Jesus Christ endures the full weight of the justice of God. It is dark and it is terrible. There's another reason why the sky grows dark. It's not just that the Father turns away from Him or the terror of judgment. You remember Exodus chapter 10? The ten plagues? Do you remember what plague comes immediately before the Passover sacrifice? The plague that came immediately before the killing of the Egyptian firstborn sons? Verses 21 through 23, Exodus 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be a darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. And so Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. And they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. We see in this passage, Egypt was in darkness, the darkness that comes before the Lamb of God is slain. It's a darkness that warned all of the people the angel of death is approaching. It was a darkness that signaled that the great act of judgment that would result in the deliverance of God's people was about to take place. You think, yes, Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is, but He's more than that. Because in the story in Egypt, what was it that broke the reign of Pharaoh? What, what was it that finally defeated him and forced him to say to the people of God, Go! What plague did the Lord unleash that brought freedom to his enslaved and in bondage children? The children were set free by the death of the firstborn son of the enemies of God. And so Christ dies not only as the Passover lamb, as a covering for the sins of his people, but he dies as one of the Egyptians. It wasn't the firstborn sons of Israel that died, but the firstborn of their enemies. And here you see the, the Passover lamb becomes the enemy of God by taking the place of God's enemies. And the firstborn son is slain so that all of God's people can go free. You, you, you feel the, the problem here. Right? Because in the prophets and in Exodus, the darkness is against God's enemies, isn't it? It was justice carried out against the unrighteous. It was against those who reject the true God, those who turn away from God, who were like Pharaoh, thought they were God. It was against those who were wicked, those who opposed God, but not against those who worshipped Him. 
It wasn't against those who were upright and and righteous and upstanding and serving the Lord. But that's exactly the point. Because Jesus is not dying as one of God's people, but as one of His enemies. He's not dying as the righteous Son of God, but as the enemy of God. He's not dying as the righteous one who is perfect and blameless and never done anything wrong, but the one who has only ever done wrong every day of his life. Because he is taking our place and it is being done so that God's people would not be killed in judgment, but could go free. This is why he's offered up at the ninth hour. The ninth hour. According to our clocks, you wonder when that would be? It would be three o'clock in the afternoon. And in ancient Israel, this was the time of the evening sacrifice. Hebrews tells us that Jesus was offered up as the final sacrifice. Some people hate this. I talked to people before and they say that Jesus being offered as a sacrifice is an abomination. It's a horrific thing. It's something they, they can't comprehend. And I have to agree with them, at least in part, it is a horrific thing. It is a terrible, even abominable thing for the Son of God to be offered up. But it's not something to be derided and looked down on. It's the only hope that anyone will ever have before Christ. And anyone who looks at this, the cross of Christ, the Father giving His Son with some kind of disdain, their condemnation is just. Jesus is the fulfillment of every sacrifice lifted up in the sacrificial system. Every morning or evening sacrifice, every lamb, goat, bull, or bird that was laid on the altar, every guilt offering or sin offering or burnt offering, all of them pointed to the work of Christ in this moment. And one of the most important parts of of offering a sacrifice was the laying on of hands. Whoever was bringing the offering, they would lay their hands upon the head of the the, the creature that was to be sacrificed on the altar. And when they did, putting their hands upon it, it was symbolic of the transfer of guilt from the person to the innocent animal. And the creature that had committed no sin, the one that had done no wrong, would die in their place. This was true of every sacrifice, but especially of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement and the Passover Lamb. And here... Three o'clock, twilight, on this day is the time to kill the Passover lambs. And while the blood of the Passover lambs are being poured out in the temple, the blood of the true Passover lamb is being poured out here on the cross. This darkness is the three hours when Christ is stricken, smitten, and afflicted. And when the divine fury to which every sacrifice pointed is poured out, all of the hundreds of thousands of animals slain, and the millions of gallons of blood, uh, the the generations of, of this persisted offering up, all of it was a shadow pointing to this moment. It might surprise you that in this system, it wasn't the priest who killed the animal. Now, the priest offered it. The priest would present the blood. The priest would be the one who laid the creature, the animal, upon the altar. But rarely would he be the one who killed it. It was the responsibility of the one bringing the sacrifice to slit the throat. We know Christ is the offering. We know according to Hebrews, He is our high priest. But if He is the high priest, have you ever read this and asked the question, who is the one offering the sacrifice? Christ is willing 
Who is the one wielding the knife? In Genesis 22, there is a story of Abraham and Isaac. Isaac, his one and only son whom he loves. And in that story, Genesis 22, God calls out to Abraham and tells Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the top of a mountain in the land of Moriah and present him there as a burnt offering. And you remember the story. Abraham is hesitant. Obviously, he doesn't want to go. Would you? Stronger than his reservation is his faith and trust in God, even over death. And so, early in the morning, he takes Isaac and he goes up to the mountain. Isaac is carrying the wood for his own sacrifice. Abraham is carrying the fire and the knife. And as they approach, they see the mountain in the distance. Isaac, he, he says, there's a, he sees a problem here. And so he, he looks around, looks to Abraham, his father, and says, I see the wood and I see the fire, but where is the lamb? I can't imagine being Abraham in that moment. He says, God will provide. And then they march up the mountain, they build the altar, they arrange the wood. Abraham binds the son he loves and lays him on top of the altar. Abraham raises the knife above his head. He stares down into the heart of his son. And then just as the knife begins to plunge downward, he hears a voice that stays his hand, doesn't he? God speaks and stops Abraham. He says, Abraham, Abraham, do not harm the boy. Do not do anything to him, for you have not withheld him from me. And now I know that you love me, says the Lord. And Abraham looks, and there in the thicket, caught by its horns, is a ram. And he uses a knife he was about to slay his son with, and he cuts the cords and sets the son free and takes the ram that God gave, and he offers the blood of that ram to God on the altar, offers the ram as a burnt sacrifice, and then he calls the place Jehovah-Jireh. God will provide. God will provide a substitute. God will provide a sacrifice. Here in Calvary, over a thousand years later, God provides. But it's not a ram caught by its horns. The story repeats itself. In fact, it may have been on the very same mountain, Moriah. And God the Father and God the Son ascend the hill, the Son carrying the wood and the Father carrying the knife. And the son, the only son whom he loves, offers no resistance, but is nailed upon the altar of the cross. And the father raises the knife up over his head. And we've seen this scene before, but this time there will be no voice that comes and stays his hand. This time, there's not going to be any intervention or any rescue, and the knife will come plummeting down into the heart of the Son. No deliverance, because Jesus Christ is the promised 
provision. He is like the ram caught by his horns. He is the substitute. He is forsaken by God. The father turns his face away. Not, not because he cannot bear to look. But because his son became sin. And the father cannot bear to look at what his son has become. The father cannot leave sin unpunished. And Jesus himself pays the wages of sin. And he does it being forsaken by God his father. When he cries out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is crying out of the psalm, Psalm 22. And whatever David meant when he wrote it, he was writing about this. He was writing the words of Christ as he dies under the wrath of his own father. He says, why have you forsaken me? And in the psalm, the, the argument raised by the one who is suffering, he, he says this, he, he objects before God. He says, God, none of my forefathers, none of them were ever forsaken by you. None of them were ever put to shame because they trusted in you. I mean, Abraham, you came for him. You rescued him. David, you, you rescued him. You saved him again and again. Noah, righteous Noah, was delivered from the flood and, and Lot and Moses and Joshua and your people whenever they cried out to you and even Samson, everyone who cried out to you, sinful as they were, you heard their voice and you came for them. You didn't forsake them. But I cry out, why is there no answer? Father, where are you? Where is your deliverance? You never forsook any of them, but here I am. I call out, I groan, and you're gone. Your face is turned against me, Father. Why have you forsaken me? <clears throat> six verses later, verse 6 gives the answer. He says, but I am a worm and not a man. I am a worm and not like them. I have become like the creeping thing. Cursed. I have become the scapegoat and the sin bearer. No longer the righteous one. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to the roof of my mouth. And you have laid me in the dust of death. The Lord is dying completely alone. I read this and I think of John 16.32. It's unique in John's Gospel. John has told his disciples they're going to abandon him. He's in the upper room. He says to them in verse 32, so they're going to abandon him, but the Lord draws strength. He says, even though you all desert me, yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. He says, I can, I can bear your forsaking me. I can bear your betraying me and leaving me because my Father is with me. And so he looks at what's going to happen. All of his closest friends abandoning him, disowning him, betraying him. And he says, I can, I can endure this. I'm not alone. My Father will be near to me. And he, he tells the disciples this when in only a few hours he's going to look up 
And the Father's loving face is going to be looking down as a frown. He says this knowing that very shortly he is going to be looking into the white hot uh, eruption of God's righteous indignation and hatred and fury against sin. And he knows he's going to do it alone, not just apart from his friends, but apart from his Father. And unless you... So you don't get the wrong idea about what's happening here. Now I want you to consider the Father for a moment. He is the one carrying out the sacrifice. He is the one who has the knife in His hand. What must be happening in Him? Now we're tempted in this moment with words like wrath and forsaking to think that, that God the Father is utterly apathetic to the plight of His Son. Right? God is venting His rage almost in an uncontrolled way. That's how we're tempted to think about it, just lashing out. Don't believe that for a second. Do you know what the Bible says? In John chapter 1, He writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that word with, it, it means literally face to face. Now, some of you with children, you, you know this. One of your favorite things to do is just to pick the child up and just look at them. I see some of you doing it right now. And with the children, it's universal. They, they love to play a game where you hide your face and then you poke your face back out called peekaboo. And when the father reveals his face and the child sees them, they're both filled with joy, aren't they? Something special and something intimate about being face to face. It's something we, we cannot describe, but we all understand. Now, do you realize that this is the language used to describe the relationship between God the Father and God the Son from all eternity? And yet here at the cross, what happens? The Father turns His face away. And Christ in His darkest hours, as the, as the knife comes down, there's no looking into the eyes. There's no comfort from the Father. Just the turning of the blade. And though everyone around Christ on that day looked at Him as a criminal and a blasphemer that deserved to die, and even though they hated Him, and even though they cheered at His destruction, that's not what the Father saw. He saw the last one in all of the universe that should have been hanging on that tree. He saw the only one He would never think to strike. He saw the only innocent man who ever lived. And he knew it. We read about it this morning. Who can approach God? One who has clean hands and who has not lifted up his soul to idols. There's only one man who's ever done that. And here he is on the cross. This is God's Son. This is the perfect, spotless one. He is the one who, at his baptism, it was said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. At the transfiguration, this is my son. Listen to him. And for all of the Father's wrath being poured out in this moment, he still loves him. And if that wasn't enough, at the cross, Christ is excelling himself in love. Now, he's always been a glorious son, but here in this moment, he is surpassing himself. 
Because in John 10, 17, Jesus says, For this reason, the Father loves me. You think about this. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life. For this reason, the Father loves me because I am going to go to that tree. This wasn't the only reason that God loved him, but it was the pinnacle of God's love for his son. Never was there a time in those 30 years where the father was more pleased with his son than here at the cross. It's like when you see your own child and they're doing exactly what you ask them to do and more. And they're going above and beyond. And even though it's difficult, they persevere. What does that do to the heart of a parent when you see your child doing that? You're proud of them. In that moment, your heart is bursting with affection. That's what's happening here at the cross. And at the height of the Son's obedience, and at the height of the Father's affection, the sky grows dark, and the knife comes down into His hand, and into His feet, and into His side, and into His head. Into His very heart. It happens at the moment of the Father's greatest delight in His Son. So don't think, even for a second, that it was easier for the Father to crush Him than for the Son to receive it. You need to get this about the cross or you'll just think that God is angry all the time. Those surrounding Christ looked at Him and thought of Him as accursed. And though He is bearing the curse for us, He is the most beloved and glorious One in all the world in the sight of His Father. The heart of the Son is pierced by a spear. The Father's heart is shattered. This is the cost of your redemption. It cost the Lord Christ the wrath of God. It cost the Father His only beloved Son now, it would be a temptation now or, or a fear that you might suspect God, having paid so much, would be disappointed or upset receiving so little He gets from us in return. But lest you be tempted to think that there was any begrudging in God, right? Because we would. If we gave so much, if we loved someone so dearly, we gave everything for somebody else and got a pittance in return, I mean, how would you respond? Your love might wear out pretty quickly. Not God's. Because His love is not based on what He gets out of you. His love flows out of Himself onto His people. The Bible says it's poured into our hearts because of Christ. In His final hour, Jesus cries out in a loud voice. Matthew tells us He cried out in a loud voice. John tells us He cried out, It is finished. This is not just a cry of exhaustion. It's not like the cross has been so agonizing that now at this point Jesus is finally worn out and He dies. 
This is the giving of His life. And it's as though with all of the strength remaining in Him, in this moment He expends it in a final cry to remind us that His life is not being taken away from Him, but His life is being given willingly. Even Matthew says, He yielded His Spirit. His own life departs at His command. And through it all, He and the Father were willing to endure, willing to go through with it, suffer such pain. But why? And why like this? Have you ever asked the question, why God will never forsake you? Have you ever wondered how it could be so that He will never leave you or abandon you? How can He say those words? Have you ever considered how God, who despises sin so perfectly that He cannot even look at it, how He can look at you with joy? Like the Bible says, rejoice over you. How can He rejoice over a sinner? What do you think of people who rejoice over sinners? You say, we're all sinners. Okay. What do you think of people who rejoice over Hitler and say he was a good guy? We follow him. What do you think about people who rejoice over Osama bin Laden and the taking of life that happened under his command and they celebrate it? They identify with him. What do you think of people like that? Well, you don't think much. How can God rejoice over sinners like us? How can He make all of these promises and keep them? Have you ever wrestled with that? And if you've never wrestled with it, why not? How is it not possible to feel the, the tension of your sin when you call God Father? I mean, how can you not hear the accusations? How do you overcome no evil thing will dwell in the presence of the Lord or He will not leave the guilty unpunished and then you rejoice and look forward to going to live in the presence of the Lord when you know you're both evil and guilty? Have you ever asked the question, why should God, how could God show any kindness or interest into a sinner like me? Certainly we don't deserve the love of God. Certainly we've never earned it. Certainly no one would think they were righteous and worthy to receive it. John 3.16 says, For God loved the world in this way. He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The love of God manifest in the giving of His Son is the only reason why any good will ever come to you in your entire life. And the love of God manifest is the reason for the cross. The cross is a manifestation of God's love for His people. Right? For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. The love of God is why He suffered and the love of God is why perfect love drives out all fear. All the good you will ever have, every promise, every blessing, was purchased for you by Christ. 
The reason why God can show His love for you is because He has clothed you in the righteousness of Christ and declared you righteous in His sight. The reason He promises to never leave you nor forsake you, this becomes very real here at the cross. The reason He'll never forsake you, the reason He can make that promise to a sinner is because Christ the Righteous One was forsaken in your place. The reason you are clothed in righteousness is because His righteousness was stripped off of Him like that scarlet robe. The reason He hears you when you cry out, Father, is because when His own Son cried out, Father, He was disregarded. Every good you have, every blessing, every promise, every hope and every eternal joy was purchased for you by Christ and then given to you at the cross. This is why we sing, all I have is Christ. Because apart from Him, you have no good thing. So think much about the Lord Jesus Christ. Think much about the cross. And it's when you're getting irritated, think how worthy God is to be irritated at you. And yet, He loves you. When you complain, Christ had more reason to complain than anybody in the whole world at being treated so unjustly, and yet He endured it all for your sake. When you don't want to cover over the sin of somebody that has sinned against you, and you're hesitant to forgive, think what a great and undeserved forgiveness you have received from God. Forgiveness will become a whole lot easier when you realize how much you've been forgiven. And if you don't know Him this morning, you're not a Christian. You say, I'm, I'm a sinner. No unclean thing can dwell in the presence of God. I don't know how I could come. Don't you understand anything? Jesus Christ came for sinners. He is dying for sinners, not for the righteous. I mean, why would He come and die for righteous, deserving people? His very death, the necessity of His dying, screams out, I came for those who are unworthy and unrighteous and unclean. He calls out to those who are condemned. Do not ignore so great a salvation. Do not turn away from so great a sacrifice. You know what it's like? I've used the example before. But imagine a father and a son, and they're walking down the road, and, and they walk past your house, and there your house is, is going up in flames. The whole first floor is on fire, and you're up asleep in the bed. And the father looks to his son and says, Son, so-and-so is up there, and I love them, and I'm sending you to go in and get them. And so the son, obedient to his father and everything, rushes into the house, fights his way through the flames and the smoke, goes up to the stairs as the house is collapsing around him, grabs hold of you, 
throws you out of the window so you go out and you land safely in the snow and when he does the whole house comes crashing down crushing and killing the son and the father comes to you and he reaches out his hand pick you up off of the ground and say come and follow me and when he reaches down his hand you swat it away and say no thank you I can find my own way. No thank you. I don't care about the sacrifice of your son. He didn't have to do that for me. How will we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? What would you think of somebody who, who did such a thing to a father who had given so much, to a son who had sacrificed so greatly? What would you think of a person who would do that? Swat him away ungratefully, without thanks, with even hatred towards him, and say, No, thank you, not for me. You wouldn't think very much of him, would you? In fact, even if you witnessed it, if you didn't know that I was talking about you rejecting Christ, and you saw this happen, you would be furious at the ingratitude of the person rejecting what had so graciously been given to them. Well, if you're going to be angry about that, then understand it rightly and take a look at yourself and ask yourself, have I ignored so great a salvation? And if the answer is yes, what will become of you? Except you haven't just swatted his hand away where his son died in a fire. What you've done is a million times worse but rejected the perfect Son of God who bore the sin of all of the world. The analogy just seems pitiful in comparison. Don't go on another day rejecting Christ. He is willing and ready to save. That's why He came, is to save sinners. That's why He came, was to redeem ungrateful people. So confess your sins and come to Him and have all of those sins wiped away. Come to Christ in repentance and faith and walk humbly with your God. Don't spurn or scorn the offer of His grace any longer. He will forgive all offense if you come to Him. You might not be willing to forgive if someone did that to you, but God is willing to forgive those who put their trust in Him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that no one would look on the sacrifice of Your Son as a, as a light or a small thing, but that, Lord, for Your people, for those who call upon Your name, that forgiveness, God, that we would be ready and eager to forgive as You have been eager and delighted to forgive us and not just to forgive us, Lord, but, but reconcile us to Yourself. We were once Your enemies, now we're going to eat at Your table. We were once Your enemies, You have called us sons and daughters and invited us into Your presence and, and done good to us. Lord, Your forgiveness is greater than anything this world knows. I pray, Lord, that we would recognize uh, that what it costs us to forgive somebody else never compares 
to the price you paid to forgive us. Lord, it's not worthy to be compared. No wonder you say so many times that those who will not forgive will not be forgiven. If we will not forgive others their trespasses, neither will you forgive ours. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be a people who are ready and quick and who delight to overlook an offense against ourselves, knowing that so many and so much greater offenses you have overlooked. I pray, Lord, that we would not look at the cost of our redemption as a small thing. It was the greatest price ever paid for anything in the world. And not because we're so wonderful, but because you're so good. And that you would help us to think rightly of you, Father. That we would know that you love us. That you will never abandon us or forsake us. How can you? You have declared us righteousness, righteous with a declaration that cannot be changed. We are righteous before you, not because of us. We have nothing to offer in our hands. But you have done it all and given us all that we need. And Lord, you're never disappointed or begrudging when we don't respond the way that we should. But Lord, you come and you discipline us and you train us and you teach us because you love us. Lord, thank you that our sin is not greater than your grace. Thank you that you give us what we do not deserve. And help us in our lives, Lord, to live out the gospel by not treating others the way they may deserve, but treating them with mercy and with grace. And Lord, I pray for anyone who doesn't know you. Lord, please be merciful to them. Lord, they don't know what they're doing when they turn away from you. Lord, I pray, Lord, there, Lord, people sometimes hear hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. But Lord, your patience towards them in this life, when does it become exhausted? You are so kind. You are so ready to forgive. Lord, I pray that your kindness and your love would lead people to repentance and to faith. Lord, I don't know where the hearts of people are in this room, but you do. And I pray that you would show them, Lord, give them eyes to see how bad sin really is and how wonderful it is to walk with your Son, how great it is to be forgiven and to be reconciled to you. Nobody who puts their trust in Christ will ever be put to shame and nobody who puts their trust in you will ever regret it. Though there is only one decision that will be regretted all throughout eternity. And it is to reject your Son, Jesus Christ, having heard of Him. I pray that would not be true for anybody in this room. Thank you, Lord, that you have given so great a salvation, sufficient, Lord, to redeem your people for all time. It's in your name we pray, and in your name we give thanks.
Amen.